I think one of the biggest things for adoptees especially is that we have that extra that extra removal from our home culture or our mother culture or first cultures. And unfortunately, it can be really tough to get around. And I know a lot of adoptees that do go to college and have went to gotten involved in these groups and things like that. And just for me, it did not stick. It did not click with me. And it honestly pushed me even a little bit further away and not because of any fault of their own. You know, I owe those people an apology um, after all these years, but because of my deep shame of feeling like I didn't belong, even I, I wasn't even worthy of having a conversation with them. Hi guys, welcome back to the Situation Room for season two. We are back at it, resuming our journey into Asian America to talk about the Asian American Pacific Islander or AAPI, issues, culture, and stories. As always, we dive deep into the issues in the Asian American Pacific Islander community from questions like, where are you really from? And representation to sharing food and our own experiences. My name is Emily Villaverde. And I'm Zach Ng. This episode, we have another incredible interview for y'all. Patrick Armstrong is an awesome guy who has embarked on a supercharged journey into exploring his Asian American identity. Patrick is the founder of the nonprofit All Times Are Local and a co-host of The John Chi Show, a podcast about, by, and for Korean adoptees. His show is awesome, and I admire the work he does for his and our communities. And our conversation, we talk about a lot of stuff from Patrick's Asian American identity awakening and exploring his Korean American adoptee identity to mental health and vulnerability. Yeah, guys, I really enjoyed sitting down with Patrick uh, for this interview. We actually met Patrick through one of our past podcast guests, um, Jerry Wan, who is the podcast host for Dear Asian Americans. And he uh, is the owner of Just Like Media. We talked a lot about community work with Patrick in our interview. And I really enjoyed this conversation just because reflecting back on the work that I've done uh, for local communities and just doing work that empowers you and benefits those around you, that's a lot of... Um, what you guys will be hearing in this interview with Patrick because it's something that he just loves to do. Um, and yeah, and I'm really excited for you guys to check this out. I remember we, the first time I actually met Patrick, Jerry didn't know that he was going to be on our show as a guest. And he, Jerry was actually calling me out because, um, what's it called? He was like, oh, Patrick is such a great guy. He's done so much for the Asian American community. You should totally reach out and hit him up and have him on your show. Well, Jerry, if you're watching, this is that episode. I think we do give Jerry a shout out during the interview too. No, for sure. Uh, we It's it's courtesy. We do give yeah. Jerry, I'm pretty sure we do give Jerry a shout out. The, if not, Jerry Wan, you are incredible. <laughs> the Asian podcast dad. Um, <laughs> Emily and I aren't a part of the Korean record adopted community, but I felt really compelled by his story. And although my story is different, I related to his journey of learning about the Asian American issues and exploring my own Asian American identity. And I think the Korean American adoptee community, you know, as a part of the Asian American diaspora, you know, learning about that was really eye-opening. Uh, but, you know, let's get into it. Let's get into that interview. 
Welcome to the Situation Room. We are so excited to have you here on our show for season two. Can you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, and introduce the journey that you've been on to everyone tuning in? Absolutely. Uh, Emily, Zach, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, It's really an honor to be here on the Situation Room. Um, A little bit about me. My name is Patrick Armstrong. I am a Korean-American adoptee. I was born in Seoul in 1990 and adopted by a white family in Indiana. Grew up in rural Indiana. Currently live in Indianapolis. Um, I work just a regular odd job, but I'm also a uh, the president and the co-founder of a nonprofit in Chicago um, called the All Times or Local Foundation. Um, we help older foster youth uh, get connected with cell phones and unlimited data plans through our Phones for Fosters program. And on top of that, I'm also the host of a podcast with two other Korean-American adoptees. Um, It's called The John Chi Show. We've been out since September of last year, and it's really been a fun and awesome journey. Um, A lot of the current work that I'm doing in the adoptee space, uh, which I think we might talk about here a little bit, is really predicated on this coming out of the fog journey that I've been on and the podcast is a really big part of that and we've been really lucky to meet a lot of guests and a lot of other adoptees and unpack and explore all of our different identities that make up make us up and all different kinds of stuff it's really been a lot of fun awesome awesome um so you know before we get into awesome things like all times are local uh let's start with your journey into understanding your Asian American identity and I guess a good place to start with that would be uh, growing up. So tell us what growing up was like. Sure. So as I said, grew up in rural Indiana. So I don't know how many of your listeners know a lot about Indiana, but it's mostly fields and a lot of, it's a predominantly white space, uh, especially the town that I grew up in. So being adopted, um, my adoptive parents, I also have a sister, a younger sister who was non-biological to me, but also adopted from Korea. Um, she was really the only other person that looked like me in my town. So growing up, our parents were great about, you know, not saying we were white or, you know, that we weren't, you know, that we were like their biological children or something, you know, like obviously we would figure that out. But, um, I think growing up, it was really hard to kind of process all of that as a kid. And then, um, those experiences, of being younger and being the only person that looked like me, I think really started to weigh on me at an early age. Um, And, you know, there were times that I was wishing that I was not Asian. So for me, the journey to kind of discovering that identity didn't even begin until after college. Um, I experienced different, different experiences of like subtle racisms, I guess you could say, prejudices and things like that. Uh, in my hometown that I never really understood until I had gotten into college, gotten out of that town, and had a chance to kind of take a step back and look at my life uh, from a wider lens. Um, And so, yeah, growing up, it wasn't a lot of coming into Asian identity at all. It was more dismissing it and being very dismissive of it. So once I got out of there, it was really... It did take me a while. It took me a long time to, to start coming into that. But um, yeah, different experiences in college and especially post-college really started to kick that journey off for me. 
So you said that you, for the most part growing up, dismissed the idea of identity and your Asian American, Korean American uh, background. But were there moments, especially growing up in a predominantly white Caucasian area, I know Zach and I can relate because we also grew up in areas that are predominantly white, predominantly Caucasian. Did you ever have, you know, those moments throughout your childhood that you can think of right now where you just, you thought about your identity as, you know, Korean American or Asian American? Um, I'm going to be totally honest. Not really. I did not have very many experiences like that. Even in high school, when I, you start to develop more of that social awareness and really start to, well, I guess for me, I was still identifying as like a Caucasian American. I never mm -hmm. felt truly identi or identifiable with Asian American culture, Korean American culture, and through no fault of like my adoptive parents, but there was just none of that to be exposed to. You know, I think the closest thing that I can think of as a kid was when like the Jackie Chan adventures would be on uh, TV. I don't know if <laughs> I think you guys might know about that, but that was like yep. the closest thing for me that I ever got to experience that was anything Asian. And so the only, the other thing, and I just actually wrote about this was um, when I was in high school, that was right after Yao Ming got drafted into the NBA. And so that was cool to see that, but then I immediately became Yao Ming to all the other people that played sports because I played three different sports. And so I had to wear that. And instead of internalizing it in a good way, I internalized it in a bad way where I would make the jokes first and I would try and get out ahead of that. And, you know, and I would play up or play into stereotypes or laugh at myself, um, but not out of humor's sake, out of like protection. So just trying to protect myself, I guess, because at the end of the day, my whole journey as a kid and growing up and where I grew up at, it was all about acceptance. You know, I think that was something that I was constantly seeking even after I got out of school. But really, when I was when I was growing up, just wanting to fit in and just be like everybody else and make sure that everybody else liked me. Definitely. I mean, <laughs> thinking about now you're making me think back to my child my childhood and our listeners have heard me say this but growing up i also wasn't as connected with my asian american background my filipino background um it was all about protection and trying to be accepted by your peers around you so growing up i pushed i tried to quote unquote americanize myself um, out of protection. I really didn't identify with my Filipino roots. And it was hard because there, I did think about it a little bit in high school when my friends um, or my friends at the time would label me as, you know, that Asian, uh, or they would ask me about different Asian stereotypes and I would laugh it off. Yeah. But it wasn't until I got to uh, college and Typically, colleges are so much more diverse than the high school setting that you're in. Um, and when you went to college, you know, how I wanted to ask, how did your understanding of your identity, your Asian American identity, was it challenged in any way? Because I'm thinking about my experiences and it was kind of like a life altering experience because this is the first time that I'm in an environment and in a community where it's okay to be different and you can find groups that 
you know, are very similar to you and you find communities that you belong in. So I wanted to know about your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's really interesting. I went to college and while I do believe like my social awareness and awareness of identities expanded, unfortunately, my self perception of my own identity did not. Um, so I've told the story a couple times, but uh, I just to reference, you know, like you said, when a lot of people go to college, that's when their eyes are opened and they can meet groups and diversify their friend groups and things like that. Unfortunately, that was not something I, I mean, I did that a little bit, but so I went to Purdue University and there are a ton of Asian uh, exchange or international students that go there. Um, and I will never forget, I was in a lecture class and uh, an Asian student was coming up to me to try and have a conversation, was like talking to me and I don't know if they're speaking Mandarin or Korean, I, I have no idea. And I was just, in that moment, that was like, a, that's a, that was a moment where I was like, I had a choice. I can engage this person at any level and try to befriend them or I cannot do that and continue going down the path that I've been on. And unfortunately I chose the latter. Um, I was just really uncomfortable with being, being seen as an imposter, uh, as I've had felt my entire life. Um, I think one of the biggest things for adoptees especially is that we have that extra, that extra removal from our home culture or our mother culture or first cultures. And unfortunately it can be really tough to get around. And I know a lot of adoptees that do go to college and have went to gotten involved in these groups and things like that. And just for me, it did not stick. It did not click with me. And it honestly pushed me even a little bit further away and not because of any fault of their own. You know, I owe those people an apology um, after all these years, but because of my deep shame of feeling like I didn't belong even I, I wasn't even worthy of having a conversation with them. And if I did, you know, are they going to laugh at me? They're going to laugh me off. So for me, it really was, it was like, it was like adjacent expansion, like peripheral expansion, but no like head on uh, expansion, if that makes any sense. So when it comes to like understanding identity as like a, as a construct and a concept, I could see it in other in other communities, in the black community, indigenous communities, uh, the Latina communities, you know, I could see that there. And like, that's when I started to really get behind social justice things. But for just for myself, for whatever reason, I couldn't, I couldn't come for or could come through with it at that time. Wow, no, thank you for sharing that. Um, it, it's always an interesting experience, like going to college and, and or being somewhere where your bubble gets popped. Um, in that sense. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about um, as a Korean adoptee being removed um, from you know, your first culture or mother culture. Uh, and so I'm curious, you, you talk a lot on social media um, about um, the importance of mental health and, and carrying emotional baggage growing up as a Korean adoptee. And I was wondering if you could like expand on that a little bit um, and give some insight for people who don't know what that experience is like. Sure. Um, so I do want to preface by saying that my journey out of the fog, my coming out of the fog journey, which is the what is referenced as in the adoptee community as your first steps of understanding adoption and your adoption story outside of your own specific view point. So like well, like when you're understanding identity or like what we all do through life, it's like that, uh, but just specifically related to adoption. Um, 
that happened in May of last year. All of that started. So it's been a really accelerated journey for me. And I want I wanted to preface with that by saying, you know, when I talk about emotional baggage for adoptees, a lot of this is, you know, centered through my experience. Uh, I don't I don't I don't speak for the adoptee community, everyone. Um, I would like to think that in this time that I've been a part of the community um, and come out of the fog that I've seen a lot of similar themes and through lines, which I will speak to here in a second. But I just wanted to say that real quick, um, just because I think one of the biggest things uh, that really ties this into mental health and the emotional baggage that we carry as adoptees is the fact that we're burdened by narratives. And I think as uh, Asian Americans can understand, you know, especially the model minority myth, I think that specifically is something that we all are fighting, not just adoptees, not just Asian Americans, just Asians in general um, are trying to push back against this myth. And for adoptees specifically, those types of narratives run back to the history and the beginnings of international adoption, the way orphans, Korean orphans were portrayed, um, the way that propaganda and, and advertisements and things were set up to tug at the heartstrings of people that uh, in America who see maybe the Korean War is not something good uh, or is something it's not something good, but this is now a way that they can justify the involvement here. And I say all that because I think that narratives and emotional baggage for adoptees is really important because we it's not something that's commonly talked about when you talk about adoption uh, to the general public. I think for the most part, a lot of the narratives that you see for adoption it, are, are very positive, are genuinely positive, usually have some sort of Christian bent to it. Uh, I'm, I'm not a secular person, not religious at all, but I don't have any problem with religion. But you do see those themes uh, when it's presented. And unfortunately, that's just not the reality for the majority of adoptees. So when I talk about emotional baggage specifically, you know, I think about how those narratives have played over my life and how I've seen them and, you know, internalize those things like the Yao Ming situation when I was in school, you know, even just going back to tiny, just subtle prejudices um, or when people ask, you know, oh, you're when they find out you're adopted, it becomes a whole thing. That's the whole anything that anybody wants to talk about. And then it becomes about. Well, who, where are your parents? Have you ever tried to find your parents? Why don't you speak Korean? You know, it becomes it becomes less about us as a person and it becomes about our the story specifically. And it becomes we become then almost commodified in a way um, because people aren't here for us. They're here for, you know, to say, oh, my gosh, that was a great story. And so they have something to tell. And so. All of those things, all, all of the history and the narratives and the way that those are perpetuated uh, to this day are all equal up to, you know, a lot of emotional things that we are trying to constantly suppress, I think, because we are trying to live up to this happy standard. Um, it's, it's just almost impossible. And I think that, again, for adoptees specifically and then for myself specifically, I think the toughest part about it is it's so hard to know when to ask those questions and when to ask questions about it. It's you get so you get so wrapped up in your own or in the stories that everyone else is telling you that you begin to question yourself and you can never and you feel 
you feel outside of your body, almost like it's not your own experience. And so I've had that, I've had that many times and just wondering, you know, am I doing the right things? Am I letting these people down? You know, my adoptive parents who brought me into, who brought me over here, you know, what am I doing to disappoint them? And getting so caught up in, in the aspect of pleasing other people, um, because you feel like you're supposed to be grateful and you're supposed to be happy for what happened to you, that, that, that can weigh on you, that strains on you. And I think for me specifically that that's, that's the baggage that I carry a lot is, you know, I don't know anything about my history, but all anybody ever wants to ask me about or, or know about when they find out I'm adopted is my history. And we aren't the tellers, we aren't the, the authors of our own stories either. So that has, that's another thing that has to do with narrative too. Um, and so we're constantly trying to now reclaim and rewrite that narrative for us. And that's a lot of emotional work and stress. So that was a really long and roundabout way of saying there's a lot of stuff at play. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that there's a lot of different things, but I think at the end of the day, it's the narratives really that we're pushing back against because that leaks into things like post-adoption services, which is things like therapy or counseling or mentoring, you know, that's where you see a lot of lack in the system. And so it's not only just our own mental burdens, it's systemic issues too. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, but that was really comprehensive. And, and I, uh, as someone who's not an adoptee, I would never know those things. Um, and uh, yeah, those, I think those are very valuable experiences um, that you shared. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you did. Um, real quick, we're going to pause for a sec. Would you be able to lower yeah. your filter so we can see more of your face? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, you're, you're good. You're I have good. like a weird... I don't have a good mic stand or like a mic arm, so. Neither do I. I took my filter <laughs> off. <laughs> All right. Is, is this better? What's the sound like? We still Perfect. do that sound yeah. wise? All right. Yep. Yeah. Still good. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Um, yeah. But you mentioned a lot. Uh, you mentioned uh, talking about narrative a lot and how important, you know, writing those narratives are and how they've influenced you and other people's perceptions of Korean adoptees. Um, and so I'm curious, like, how does the Janchi show play into uh, rewriting the narrative for Korean American adoptees? Sure. So I think um, one of the ways or the main way that I think the Janchi show plays into this is that we're trying to be we're trying to bring a celebratory tone to not only our journeys, but each aspect of our identity and what that all means, because at the end of the day, every adoptee is at a different point. I talked about coming out of the fog. Nobody's coming out of the fog at a specific time. There's no book that says, okay, when you're 24, you should be checking these boxes off. You know, so I think at the John Chi show, what we provide and hopefully we provide is a safe space for people to not only come share, but to come and listen. Um, we want to hold spaces for adoptees to feel in community with others because for so often or so often uh, we feel outside of the community. Um, even if people are telling us that we're not, uh, we are in the community. For some reason, we, we can put it in our own minds that it's just like, no, I don't think so. I don't believe you for some reason, even though that's not even the case, you know, and that, that goes back to the emotional baggage. But I think as a John Chi show, what we really try and do and promote is just that there are so many different 
experiences as an adoptee, even within the Korean adoptee diaspora. You know, that's not even including Chinese adoptees, the Taiwanese adoptees, Vietnamese adoptees, any adoptees from South uh, South Asian countries. You know, there's so many. There's so many. And what I think has been the most incredible thing to, to understand and to learn through the John Chi Show and then subsequently all these other platforms that we're on is that no matter how similar through lines and themes might be of adoptee stories everyone's story is different everyone's story is unique and i and that and it just goes to show that as humans as human beings all of our stories are unique like there's no way that you can pull somebody's story no matter how similar every single aspect seems and say you're the same person as me it's just it just it can't happen it, it's just not possible and I think that's something that we hope to promote and hope that our listeners understand and hope that non-adopted listeners understand. People that uh, don't have any relation or connection to adoption or don't have any idea of the diversity that's out there. You know, I hope that they see that through our show and through the guests that we have on and through the topics that we cover. Um, you know, we started the show to be a way to celebrate our own journeys and very quickly it became about celebrating all of our guests because we had all these people that wanted to come on and share and it was great. We loved it. And, but eventually it was like, okay, we're getting a little bit lost within that. You know, let's make sure that we're also sticking to the original reason for the show, which is to share our stories. And that's when we really opened it up and, and things really started to, to roll, uh, forward. That was a terrible analogy. Um, things really started to move in, in, a, in a progressive direction. And, it, and it's been really great uh, since, you know, we had that re realization. I love that. And I definitely want to uh, jump into the John Chi show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how this new podcast got started and how, you know, cause my next question is, about asking, you know, how you came to understand your Asian American, Korean American adoptee identity. And I'm sure the John Chi show plays a lot into that. So would you mind telling our listeners at home um, how this whole journey got started? Absolutely. So guest of your show, Jerry Wan, um, has this podcast, Dear Asian Americans. And yep. um, back in May, so back when I was starting to come out of this this fog, I was watching Always Be My Maybe uh, with my fiance, and I was sitting there watching the movie, and I was just like, just resonating so hard for some reason. And I turned to her, and I'm like, I got to know more about myself. You know, when we have kids, like, what part of Korean culture am I going to pass down to them? Nothing? I don't literally know nothing. I can use chopsticks okay, but that's it. Like, is that even Korean? So just thinking about that really got me started on wanting to know more. So... I got on my podcast app and I typed in Asian Americans and that podcast came up. Um, first episode enthralled immediately, reached out to the guest and that person, Jonathan Wong, sent me an article, a study um, called Too White to be Korean and Too Korean to be White. I don't know if that was the, the correct uh, order, but I always get it confused. But I, that was the first time I'd ever read anything that had a number of uh, other adoptees that shared similar experiences to myself. They had never read it, anything like that. And I got to a section in there about uh, discovering your identity, and I was just bawling, like reading a scholastic paper. I'm like, why is this making me cry? 
And it was just because I had, I, it was like I had found a piece of my soul that was missing instantly in that moment. And so from that point, um, just lots of connecting, lots of meeting people. Jerry suggests that I come on his show to share a story. And then the like two days before I was go- going to go on there, we're having a, a phone conversation. And he goes, all right, you're about to get up to an episode uh, with my friend Nathan. He's a Korean adoptee. And then I have another episode coming out with a guy named KJ. Uh, don't know him, but he's an adoptee too. And he's like, you know, after your episode comes out, I think you guys should meet because I think you guys should do a show. I'd, wouldn't that be cool? And I was like, I guess so. And so all of our episodes come out. We do all of that. And then I think it was maybe mid-August, Jerry sets the Zoom up and we all meet for the first time. Have never met in person, did not know each other prior to this phone call. And it was really weird and awkward. I don't think at, at any of us walked away from there thinking that this show was going to come into existence. And, you know, we set up another time and just slowly we started to put it together. And then September 9th, I think, uh, we launched with three episodes focusing on us and kind of just went from there. It was It was a wild ride because... It was like me trying to learn about three different parts of myself all at the same time. So it was, it was crazy. It was, but I can't say that without just having typed in, without having watched always be my maybe, none of this may be happening without a quarantine. None of this might've happened. You know, we trying to find silver lining in 2020. Like that's one of them for me. It like, yeah. So always be my maybe is an incredible movie um if you guys haven't watched it it's on netflix it's a netflix original i believe yeah right yeah yeah and i remember watching that movie for the first time and i think that's the first that's the the first time that made me realize i want to start cooking and i want to learn my family recipes um I, my grandmother cooks some of the most amazing, both my grandmothers cook some of the most amazing Filipino food uh, I've ever had. And I have been struggling all quarantine up until this, t- this moment to try and get my grandmother um, to give me some of her recipes. But at this point, she's like, it's okay. Like, I'll just cook for you. You don't need to learn because I'm here. <laughs> but that That's movie nice definitely... <laughs> that that movie definitely was made me you know think more about my identity like what do I want to pass down to my kids when you know the next generation comes out and I definitely thought about it and realized that food and culture and tradition is something that I definitely want to keep I it's something that I want to keep for myself but also for future generations I want to be able to pass it down I think it's so important. It r- brings us back to our roots. And I we love Jerry Wan. He is like the Asian podcast dad. Yes, um, he is. He is the podcast dad. He connects sure. us with so many people. Um, a lot of the people that we've had season one and even in season two, you guys will see in a couple episodes, a lot of these connections that we made are through the incredible Jerry Wan. Um, if you guys haven't checked out season one, Jerry Wan, we had an, incre- an, an incredible episode with him and we talked about his story and his podcast and the Asian Podcast Network. So definitely check it out. 
but yeah we love jerry <laughs> he's the best he is the great connector for sure and i hope i guarantee he probably owns the incredible jerry Wan uh url i guarantee <laughs> he owns that domain now that you said it i'm like that sounds great he's got a he already owns it i know it that's funny <laughs> when you were talking about always you know maybe and like thinking about like what Korean traditions you're going to pass down or like what you could pass down. I was, I, the only, the scene I was thinking of was when they're cooking with the scallions and they have the scissors Yep. and they, they're just cutting them up. That was the only thing I was thinking about. And then Emily, I, I relate that with the, um, I'm trying to get my grandma to teach me how to cook like Chinese food and like Cantonese food. Um, but I, I can't see her in person, of course. Um, but I keep like texting her and asking her like, Hey, like, how do you, how do I do this? And she's like, her response, I'm, she's just like, you're better at cooking than me. You're right now. I'm just like, I'm Googling things <laughs> off the internet and watching YouTube video and like almost setting fire to things. That's um, better than me. My grandmother <laughs> still tells me like, I'm still around. I can cook for you. <laughs> I they're, they're hoarding the recipes is what it is. Absolutely. <laughs> hundred uh, percent. <laughs> uh, well, uh, to get back on track, um, you talk about, you know, uh, I mean, you made a pretty big jump from, you know, listening to Jerry's uh, Americans as like a catalyst uh, per se. And then in September, um, you know, starting the John Chi show with your, um, people, your co-hosts. Um, and I'm curious, like what other steps did you take, you know, to learn more about your Asian American identity? Um, and that's, a, but you know, on, on its own, you know, starting the John show is a huge thing. Um, so yeah, and also congratulations too, for making it this far. Cause podcasting is, is not easy. Well, I appreciate it. We actually were just recording some stuff, uh, before I got on here. So, uh, the, the grind never stops in the podcast game. Uh, it never ends unless you have seasons, then you can take a little bit of a break. We took, I think a one week break one time and then we were right back in it. So, um, Wait, what was the question again? Sorry, I, I literally just forgot. Oh, what other steps? What other steps? Um, so the biggest thing that I did was start to read more. Um, I think that one of the things that happened when I started on this journey is I became very interested in the history of adoption. So when I was talking about narratives, that's what fueling all of this is just reading a lot of his, historical books. Um, most recently, I've been reading a lot more about the Korean War specifically um because there's a lot of things happening there that that ties into it uh as well um so really books like adopted territory by elena kim invisible asians by kim park nelson those two are like my bibles um for adoptees and adoptee experiences but also getting into like asian american experiences uh as well um kim park nelson's book is the perfect marriage in my in my mind of like scholastic like ethnography and oral narratives um i think it's just a perfect blend and gives you a lot of insight not only to factual things but then first person accounting um and so doing a lot of that and just cold emailing and messaging as many people as i possibly could um it was really just a, a full sprint to try and take in as much information as i could um in terms of like my Asian American identity, that was a lot of that was a lot of forming kind of on the edges of, of my adoptee identity. I think uh, my co-host KJ specifically uh, is more 
into not more into but more connected and and that's kind of the path that he's on right now is a lot more of the culture and the language uh korean culture and language nathan my other our other co-host he's big into food you know he uh, he loves food he loves to cook it constantly posting videos of him cooking the food then feeding it to his really cute children um and it's uh you know i think that's where that's kind of how the separation of powers almost works on the show is like that's what we have interest in and so through the adoptee community, it's really interesting to see. And what I've seen is uh, a lot of adoptees that have been back to Korea that have done a lot of that connection. That's where I'm starting to form. It's, it's interesting how I've been forming my Asian and Korean American identities through adoptees that have formed that themselves. Um, another thing that I've been doing though, to help kind of expand that has been getting on Clubhouse. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of this new social media app, but uh, it's pretty great. Um, and just recently, um, with everything that's been going on in the community, not that it's been recent, but uh, just kind of everything that's been happening, um, you know, I feel like it's almost my duty to, to start getting engaged more and, and stepping into spaces more where I'm exposed to just just more asian american points of view outside of the adoptee community not that i'll ever step away from the adoptee community but it's important to diversify that and i think one of the best things that's really helped me learn is being able to sit in and listen on experiences of like having asian parents and what those like expectations were like and then not trying to play like a compare contrast game with my own experiences but just really like this is one of the only ways that i'm ever going to connect with uh, Korean culture outside of my own interests, because at the end of the day, I'm probably not going to find my birth family. I'm probably not going to have, you know, those second or third cousins even that could potentially connect me with any of that. So the way that I've had to go about learning about that is just through meeting people. And I think that's one of the great things. One of the reasons that podcasts are so amazing and people like Jerry are so amazing because they connect you with other people and they give you a window into um, how things are in different areas of the world and different communities. Um, and so I think that's that those are the biggest steps and the next things that, you know, for me were the most important in forming identity and unpacking all of that uh, was just meeting people and getting on new spaces and reading. I can't, you guys are in college, so you know a hundred percent what it means to just read all the time. That's basically what I'm doing now. <laughs> it's just constantly reading. No, I agree. I think that, you know, the it's really cool when you uh, dive into books that talk about identity and culture. Um, just because this is the first time. So I've checked out a couple books on Asian American identity and Asian American culture. And it's the first time that I'm seeing it in literature, like this is really cool. This is a, this applies to me. Like I'm part of this community and it's the first time that I'm holding a, I'm, I'm holding a book and I'm reading a story that I can relate to. Um, and definitely those books that you mentioned, we'll be linking it all in our show notes. Uh, so guys definitely check that out. And I have to agree. I love the idea of just meeting new people and, exposing myself to different perspectives and different networks because it's the best way to learn. I didn't know a whole lot about this, just the Asian American community until I went to a conference. Uh, Zach and I both went to this one conference. 
It's the East Coast Asian American Students Union, or ICASU. Uh, we went different years, but it was the, pretty much the same experience that we had where for the first time we were surrounded by the Asian American Pacific Islander community. And it was an eye-opening, it was like stepping out of the fog, like you said. Like we were, for me at least, I was lost and I didn't really know a whole lot about this community that I belong to, that I didn't even realize I belonged to. And from this conference and starting this incredible journey through Asian America with Zach and meeting the people that we've had on the show, working with Jerry and all of the different people that we've met so far, I've learned so much. Um, and I don't think that if, if I didn't, we didn't have this podcast, if we didn't put ourselves out there and just met new people and listen to their stories, we never would have, I never would have learned this much about the community that we're a part of. And I'm just waiting, I'm waiting for my username on Clubhouse to get approved so that I can get in. But I see all the posts that you and Jerry and everyone else puts um, about Clubhouse and it looks like a really, really cool space. If you need an invite, I have five. So <gasps> I can send you one if you both need one. Perfect. I just, you just got to give me your cell phone numbers. You don't have to say them here on the show, but uh, <laughs> just need to get, that's the only thing I need and I can send that right over to you. But Oh my goodness, yeah, Clubhouse incredible. is a really great space for connecting. It's really interesting. I think um, one of the things that was really cool was last week, Daniel, uh, Daniel DeKim, Daniel Wu, and Lisa Ling mm -hmm. held a big talk on there um, just about everything that had been happening. And it felt really yeah. important to be in that space. You know, I think something that I've been discussing with a lot of adoptees and something that's just really been on my mind lately has been, you know, inclusivity within the Asian American community, um, specifically from our perspective, like the adoptee perspective, you know, and how do we, how do we normalize that type of inclusion? And I think that that was a really cool way just to, just to, to feel like a part of that family, because a lot of times, unfortunately, we, you know, we can feel outside of it in the Asian American community. And it's really nice when we're able to connect um with other with other asian people just whoever um and just be accepted into that you know and i that ties back for me specifically back to that feeling as a kid just wanting to be accepted by just anybody uh who was around you know and that's now as an adult uh as a 30 year old person i'm thinking you know about refining that and who do i who am i wanting to be accepted by and you know what communities are mine or am I a part of? And it's nice to finally be finding that. Definitely. And I love what you said about the, just the conversation that we've had about putting ourselves in those communities and exploring those communities and learning new things. Uh, because, you know, I don't know a whole lot of people that are Asian adoptees, but just from conversations, I'm expanding my knowledge and I'm making myself more aware. And I think that's so important just to have in life. And as you know, you move along and you meet new people, the more people you meet, the more you learn. And it's just adding to the experience, which is, it's so great. And I'm really glad that we had the chance to talk with you here uh, because it's another story that we get to listen to and new things that we get to learn and add to our common knowledge. Yeah, but, and I really appreciate it. Sorry. 
No, you're totally fine. Um, one last question before we uh, take a quick break. But what is something that you would want our listeners here in the Situation Room to understand about the Korean adoptee community? Sure. Um, so I think I thought about this uh, all day, what I was going to respond to this. I think what I would want everyone to know, non-adoptees and especially the Korean American community, is that over 200,000 Korean children were adopted out of Korea. Um, over 100,000 of those ending in, up in America alone. Uh, Korean adoptees are over 10% of the community. And at the end of the day, we... I want I would like everyone to know that the the narratives and the and the things that the the preconceived notions that people may have about adoption are something that you might want to take a look at. Um, right now, I think we are in a renaissance of reclamation for adoptee narratives and Asian American narratives, and I think um, what we really what we really want and we really want to hope that the rest of the community understands is that we are Asian, we are Koreans, we are Chinese, you know, we are part of the community as well. And all we all we want, it's not even necessarily a seat at the table. It's just that that we have voices as well. We have stories as well. And that we we are here in the community. And I would just I would just I would just ask your listeners to to be mindful of adoptee stories and experiences going forward. And um, if you ever, if anyone ever has any questions or ever wanted to talk about stuff like that, uh, you can always reach out to me and I can always put you in touch with some other people that are having these conversations right now. So I think that's what I would leave with is just be mindful and just know that we, we are here. Awesome. Patrick, we are going to jump into the situation room questions that Zach and I ask every interviewee. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. First question is, what does quote unquote being AP AAPI mean to you? Being AAPI to me means being a part of something larger. It means being part of a community. It means feeling in community uh when i'm in those spaces and honestly as an adoptee uh i would like it to mean family i think at the end of the day i think that's what it boils down to for me would be family i love that um so on your show and your podcast the john chi show you guys talk about food and you actually unbox and eat and try food on the spot and i love that um, and so our little food question is what is your favorite asian dish this is so difficult for me um, you can pick because I'm like really bad about like knowing what it is I just ate and asking more questions. Um, I think my favorite food, uh, my favorite Asian dish is, I don't know, I really like japchae. I think that is really good. And so I'm really just a big fan of bulgogi. I just, I'm a big meat person. So just mm -hmm. like put it up on a plate and serve it to me just straight up. I don't even care. Um, so I think probably those two, I mean, I've always been a huge, just rice person. I just love rice. Uh, that was always my desert Island food. So, uh, <laughs> if I had to break it down and just be so basic, it is just plain, right? White rice with a little bit of, a little bit of pepper. Yeah. I, mm. If you're watching the YouTube video version of this, 
this is an empty bowl I scarfed down from dinner. I, I made fried rice last night and I made sure to make I made like- fried rice last night. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy because you just throw it together and you can feed yourself for a few days and it's easy. And yeah, exactly. It's college it's life, baby. Yeah. The perfect college meal prep. It's just, it's a fridge cleaning dish too. Like whatever vegetables you have dish. left over, uh, whatever yep. protein you have, you just throw it in with some day, like some old rice and you're good to go for at least- three days Just i've been eating fried rice right now i've been making i've been every time i make fried rice i eat it for like three days and then i'm sick of it but i still have so much fried rice left so i force my i like I, and i have nothing else to do so i uh, nothing else to eat so i'm just oh uh, it's so good okay <laughs> next question who is your aapi role model um that was a tough one. That was a, this was something I, I was wondering about all day. Um, I'm going to be honest here, and we've already mentioned him, but I am going to be serious. It is Jerry Wan. Um, I think before this, I really didn't have any. You know, I knew of like popular Asian people, but I couldn't say they were ever like role models to me. Uh, but Jerry really has helped me not only come out of my shell and start to understand myself as a Korean American. Um, but really has me like embracing my own, like my identity, no matter what it is and finding the value within myself. So um, I'm not going to pay him for any of this, but uh, Jerry, for sure, I think right now, for sure, is my my Asian American mentor. I love that. Jerry's a great, <laughs> Jerry's a great role model for anyone, I would say. Yeah, um, role model. Oh, your role model, definitely not right. mentor. And mentor. He role will models. charge me. <laughs> He's a mentor. I mean, we, when we first reached out to Jerry, uh, for the situation room. Um, actually, I, I have to agree with you. I think the first podcast, Asian American podcast that I listened to besides Asian Enough by the LA Times, my second, my number two and three was Dear Asian Americans and Asian Boss Girl. Okay. And yeah. I remember reaching out to, we reached out to Jerry and he not only guest, uh, was a guest on our podcast, but he sends us, messages and he helps our podcast in any ways that he can he definitely is an incredible aapi role model and mentor jerry if you're listening to this thank you so much thanks jerry thank you jerry the charging for the compliment (laughs) (laughs) the charging part guy (laughs) um yeah for for those you don't know jerry's a career coach um and he has a new podcast too beyond the resumes Um, yes yes yeah so talks about career advice um and i'm I'm personally a fan i'm not being paid to say any of this uh jerry's not paying us anything no nope (laughs) but our last question patrick is how can people connect with you um, you can connect with me on Instagram at Patrick in the world. Uh, that's my personal Instagram. I also launched uh, an adoptee or it's called, or it's at the adoptee project. It's called the adoptee project. Adoptee is an acronym. It stands for a dope oral project to educate everyone. Um, and we are myself and Michaela Gesford. She is a Chinese adoptee. We're exploring our personal histories or our personal experiences as adult adoptees today through the lens of history uh, in each of our respective uh, countries um, and how international adoption and those things, the history of that affects us today. So um, that's at the adoptee project. Um, and then you can also find us on the, for the show, for the podcast at John Chi show. 
Uh, we're also accepting emails, and that is John Chi Show at justlikemedia.com. Um, you can also... I didn't know if I was going to say this, but I'm just going to plug it. Uh, you can also find me on SoundCloud at Patrick in the World, I think, but it probably might still be Patrick Isn't Real. Uh, I won't tell you what type of music I make. Um, I will leave that up for your imaginations if you want to go there and check that out. Um, but other than that, you can just find me uh, at Patrick Armstrong. Look that up. I think if you Google it, sometimes my picture comes up. Um, but that's where I'm at, and my DMs are always open, especially for adoptee topics and conversation. We love it. Amazing. Do you want me to well, link your SoundCloud? No, you don't have to. You okay. can't do it. <laughs> okay. If you go to link in my bio on Instagram, all of that stuff is there, too. So if you wanted to, that's another way you can find it. But Awesome. I won't spoil the genre. <laughs> <laughs> well... Thank you again, Patrick Armstrong, for joining us here in the Situation Room. Guys, if you're interested in anything that was said during this uh, episode, we'll be linking everything in our show notes. So definitely check it out. It'll be on our website, www.situationroom.com. But incredible. Thank you again, Patrick, for joining us on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure coming on the show. Um... And as I said before, I think all of this started, I don't know if you're recording, but really, it really is an honor to come on here. I think what you guys have been doing has been amazing. I think the people that you talk to and the conversations it elicits uh, is something that's really important for everyone to hear. So uh, just for me to have the opportunity to voice my perspectives and the things that I've gone through and, and you know, where I sit in the uh, AAPI space uh, is really important. And I can't thank you enough for uh, giving me that space. Thank you so much for those Aww. kind words. We really Thank appreciate you. it. I mean, all yeah, our whole mission is, you know, exploring Asian America. And that means, you know, listening to you know, many different types of stories, uh, culture and um, different issues. And so we're really grateful to have you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Dish It Out table. For those of you who are new to our show, this is the foodie segment of the Situation Room where we sit down and we dish it out with some of our own foodie favorites from our cultures. Um, or we will introduce cuisines from other cultures within the AAPI community. So last episode, we did uh, homeland favorites. So we brought dishes from Filipino culture and Chinese culture. This episode is a challenge, Dish It Out. So Zach, what new dish are you bringing to the Dish It Out table for us? So dish we have not seen before in our podcast is Shabu Shabu. And I actually have never had Shabu Shabu. So oh, it's so good. I'm jealous. Uh, <laughs> but it means shake uh, and it means shake, shake. Kind of. There's a lot of translations for it, but one of them is shake, shake. Uh, and it replica- replicates the sound of chopsticks when hitting the pot or the ingredients making the noise as they're swished around in that pot. Uh, this is a Japanese dish. It's like a hot pot dish. Uh, so you have like a razor thin slices of beef, uh, or sometimes there's other meats or seafood. Um, and so cooking is typically up to the customer uh, in the restaurant. Um, and so you have, it's like a weird shape too. I, it looks like a cowboy hat, but with the hole in the center of the, the middle of the cowboy hat. If that makes yeah. 
any sense at all. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so there's also sauces, which are a big part of it too. And so the sauces um, that you have, there's like a ponzu sauce, which is like a citrus soy sauce and a gomodare sauce. I don't think I'm saying that right. Um, which is like a sesame based sauce. And then the broth is typically like a dashi based stock. Um, but cooking it in the stock actually removes some of the excess oil in the, in the meat, which I did not know. Um, yeah, it looks delicious. That is really interesting. Uh, I mean, I don't really, I didn't know that cooking it in the stock will remove the excess oil. That's what the chef um, said. I've had, I've had shabu shabu before in the past. It's like Zach mentioned, it's similar to hot pot, but it's the way that it's all in preparation that distinguishes it from uh, actual hot pot. Um, I love, it, it's really fun going for shabu shabu, especially with friends, because it's just sitting around and cooking with everybody around. And, you know, the food is so good. So having that, those super thin slices of beef um, throwing in a bunch of different vegetables and playing around with the sauces. The, there was one shabu shabu place that I went to where they had its own sauce bar um, and you could make your own sauces, which is, I think it's starting to like pop up in more hot pot spots because the hot spot places by me in New Jersey are kind of the same concept where you can create your own sauces based on what your taste preferences are. But it's really, if you guys haven't done anything like shabu shabu hot pot korean barbecue where you sit down and you cook with everybody at the table definitely something to experience i love going out with my friends for shabu shabu wow i want to do that i've okay uh, something i'm gonna admit makes me a quote-unquote bad asian is i've only had hot pot once uh and it was actually with you emily (laughs) And our friend Dorothy, who is, I believe, our episode four. Four, I guess. I want to say episode four. Yeah, she was episode four. Yeah, and shout out to Dorothy. And also, I'm going to say I'm really sorry because I was just about to ask, when did we go to Hot Pot together? (laughs) (laughs) Dorothy did it for us in her apartment. Our incredible, yes, definitely check out her episode um, back in season one. But Dorothy was the hostess with the mostest because she prepared (laughs) everything for us with this hot pot um dinner and i mean we're getting sidetracked because we're supposed to be talking about shabu shabu yeah we are oops you guys should definitely try out shabu shabu it's like i mentioned before it's different from hot pot the way that it's prepared and the way that you i guess eat it while you're cooking this um the the soup and preparing it is what makes shabu shabu so unique from the other from you know regular hot pot yeah but, chinese hot pot yeah yeah but for my uh challenge dish for the dish at that table i am talking about dosas personally this is one of the and i know for those of you who have been listening to the show for a while you guys know that i don't have a good relationship with indian food but i can honestly say i do love dosas for those of you who have never had dosas or don't know what it is this is kind of like a crepe but 
it's a savory Indian pancake. It's not exactly a crepe because just the way that it's prepared is completely different from how you prepare like a traditional like French crepe. But this is made from fermented dough. And I didn't know this when I, before I started looking up um, information about doses. But this is like the dough is fermented for overnight. And it primarily consists of rice and uh, black gram, which is a specific bean that is grown in India. And the dough will ferment overnight. And then in like the next day before it's prepared and it's ladled for to, to be cooked, it's thickened with water and then it's ladled into a hot griddle. It's called a tava. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or wrong, um, but this is a traditional hot griddle in India and the tava itself is greased with um, ghee, which is a clarified butter and it's very popular in India. What I love most about dosas is that it's so versatile. You can have this at any meal throughout the day, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, And it's typically filled with different sauces and vegetables. So one of like a very popular way to have dosas is with um, is uh, masala dosas and it's filled with um, tikka masala, which is a dish that we talked about in a previous episode for from Dish It Out. But yes, um, it's one of the few dishes that I do enjoy from Indian cuisine. And I'm working on it. I'm trying to immerse myself in more Indian foods and try to rebuild my, um, I guess, my relationship with Indian food. That's that's okay. Always always try to push yourself out of the comfort zone. Um, I I feel like South Asian food is slept on in American culture. Oh, know? definitely. Yeah, but okay. My friend went to in, uh, and he went to Britain, and like Indian takeout there is like the equivalent of Chinese takeout here, is what he described to me, and I was like, "Damn, really?" So, yeah, that was really That's fascinating. Yeah, but those are awesome because they're like a vehicle to eat other things as like an edible utensil kind of. I don't know if that makes any sense what I'm saying, but it's delicious. It's, honestly, I this is what I love most about these challenge segments for Dish It Out because I just, I hate to say it like this, but I just eat the food. This segment and these challenge weeks make me do a little bit of research. I get to understand the culture that this cuisine comes from a little bit better. Um, I get to learn more ways to prepare it and more ways about this dish that I didn't know when I was simply just eating it. I love that. Yeah. Also, great reason to love the shit out segment. Uh, but on that yeah. topic, we're gonna close the shit out. And if you have any dishes you'd like to, you know, share with us, and you'd like us to share with our audience, please send them to us. Uh, and if you, you know, want to give us your comments about dosas or about shabu shabu, anything like that, feel free to share it with us. It's easy to get in contact with us. Thank you again to Patrick for coming into the Situation Room and thank you all for tuning into this episode. The Situation Room, as always, is produced by Crimson Planet Media. Make sure to check out our website, situationroom.com. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook at The Situation Room for more content. 
same as always, we want to hear from you guys. So send us messages and recipes for Dish It Out through our website, slide into our DMs on Instagram, send us messages on Facebook. Let us know what you guys want to see next in the Situation Room. But for now, thank you for joining us on another step of our journey through Asian America. My name is Emily Villaverde. And I'm Sacking. So I'll see you next episode. Yeah, let's do it. All right, see you there. That's a wrap. There we go. Yay!